On September the 1st, 2021, a Colorado grand jury handed down indictments in the case surrounding the death of 23-year-old Elijah McLean, who died after an interaction with police and EMS in Aurora, Colorado. The 24-page indictment charges two paramedics from Aurora Fire with 10 counts of each of crimes, including manslaughter, criminally negligent homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, conspiracy and a range of other criminal charges. Three law enforcement officers were also charged with a variety of crimes, which is exactly how the EMS legal update from Paige Wolfbergen Worth began. And we're going to discuss this case and its implications with the authors. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. And welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. This is an important discussion and it could well be emotive for those listening because of what's going on. But uh, we talked about the headlines there, legal analysis, what the paramedic criminal charges in the Elijah McLean case mean for EMS. So joining me to discuss this are Doug Wolfberg and Steve Worth. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining me and welcome. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. Hi, Rob. Appreciate the opportunity. Indeed. And uh, thank you very much for laying out the case in EMS1.com. Obviously, we, we, we've all read that and devoured that. But for on the off chance that somebody hasn't uh, hasn't read it, who, who wants to give us a quick sort of potted um, view on what's the charges that are being laid against these providers? Sure, I'll, I'll do the, the 20,000 foot overview of the indictments Excellent. by thank the grand you. jury. Um, so the, the uh, Colorado grand jury uh, returned indictments against two paramedics on a prosecution theory that essentially criminalizes medical malpractice. Um, what the allegations center on is that an incorrect diagnosis, and that's the indictment's word, diagnosis, was made by the paramedics of excited delirium in the patient Elijah McLean. And because the diagnosis was incorrect, the paramedics unlawfully administered ketamine uh, to the patient. And in so doing, they overestimated the weight of the patient by some 57 pounds, which resulted in uh, administering a dosage of ketamine that was much higher than the protocol dosage, which the prosecutors determined would have correctly been 325 milligrams as opposed to 500 milligrams of ketamine. So in essence, the, the prosecution theory underlying those charges that you mentioned in the introduction are that an incorrect diagnosis of excited delirium put them into that protocol, which according to the prosecution, they shouldn't have been in, and that therefore the administration of the ketamine was unlawful. So it's, it's really the, the theory of taking a medical mistake and then saying you acted criminally in treating the patient that you misdiagnosed. And that in itself, from what you just said, Doug, I mean, that has so many ramifications, surely not just within the EMS profession industry, but anyone that's in the house of medicine, surely. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I, I, I want to be clear that neither I or I think my colleague, Steve, my partner, are making judgments about the clinical appropriateness of the care that was provided. That is a separate issue. Yep. And whether or not that was civilly negligent or even grossly negligent or a basis for malpractice or employment action or licensure action, 
those are whole different stories. But to say that the violation of a clinical protocol can result in criminal charges is, is new and novel ground. Diagnosis, though. Let's discuss diagnosis. Can we diagnose? Well, I think we do make diagnoses in the field in the sense of we make clinical, we establish clinical impressions, we make field diagnoses. And as EMS practitioners, yes, we do look at signs and symptoms and come to conclusions as to what may be wrong with the patient. So we get into that debate. I think we did a whole podcast on that one one time. But uh, yeah, I mean, from the standpoint of medical diagnosis, yeah, the physician has to diagnose, but we are making field diagnoses in the field. And that's why paramedics have to be at their best 110% of the time to be looking for the signs and symptoms and assess the patient properly. And obviously, uh, you know, those are some of the issues in this case. So in, in terms of this case, obviously, there's a, some say this is politically motivated. We're not going to go there today. But there are a, you know, a bucket load of charges against these people. I mean, again, I'm not sure how you answer this, but, uh, you know, what's the burden of proof? What are they going to have to do to make this stick even? Well, in all criminal cases, and I know this sounds like something we, we recite in eighth grade civics class, but I think it is critical to remember that all of these defendants, including the two paramedics, are presumed innocent until proven otherwise, and nothing has been proven here. A grand jury is not the same as a trial jury. These are allegations made by a prosecutor. Whether or not these allegations will be proven in court, whether a jury will accept them, whether this case will even see a courtroom are all factors that are currently unknown. This case may be dismissed by a judge. Uh, a defense lawyer will bring motions, multiple defense lawyers, I'm sure, will bring motions to dismiss these charges because uh, the, the court, the, the prosecutor is asking the court to allow violation of a, of a clinical protocol to rise to the level of a criminal charge, and that's unprecedented. So uh, if this case even survives those preliminary motions, uh, if there's no plea agreement, uh, which could often happen before a trial, um, a, the prosecutor will have to convince a jury that that theory holds water. And we are a long way off from that. Yeah. And I think the big challenge here is, you know, they have to prove criminal intent here that these paramedics, uh, you know, did this in such a way that they knew it would harm the patient. Uh, you know, and this is the kind of thing that is very hard to prove. You know, we've certainly dealing with a beyond the reasonable doubt standard as well in terms of, you know, proving these claims as opposed to with a standard civil negligence claim, you just have to tip the scale in favor of the negligence to prove negligence, preponderance of the evidence. So, so that's a, a long road to hoe. And I think even the uh, state attorney or district attorney in this case said it would be a difficult case to prove at the outset. And so, Doug, you've, thank you for laying out the fact that, you know, some, sometimes the impactful headline makes us think that we're almost in the courtroom and the jury sitting there waiting to, to, to decide. We're not there yet. We've got a road to travel before we get there. Um, and so thank you for laying that out and identifying it because, as I say, we're not there yet. Um, you, you mentioned intent, Steve, and you mentioned gross negligence and negligence. So just help us understand the difference between them all and what could they arrive at in in, in this case? Well, you start with ordinary negligence. That's the <clears throat> typical standard that physicians, nurses, people in the hospital are held to. Mistakes. You make mistakes. Medical mistakes are a high 
there's a high number of patients who uh, die as a result of medical mistakes, and that's ordinary negligence. And that's basically that they failed to act as a reasonable and prudent healthcare practitioner would have acted given the same or similar circumstances. And then there's gross negligence, which is almost uh, you know reckless behavior to the point of you know really uh, basically going well beyond just a mistake. Uh, it stops short of intentional which is the criminal aspect of it, of criminal negligence. But uh, gross negligence is very hard to prove. In most states and government uh, EMS practitioners, as well as uh, other EMS practitioners are pretty much enjoy across the country um, qualified immunities. And uh, you know, that's a big debate in this uh, recent cases we've seen, you know, should qualified immunity apply, but it allows for a higher standard, a, more difficult job for the plaintiff to prove negligence in a case of emergency services like this, because in this case, for example, the paramedics came into the scene well into it, you know, after the police had engaged and interacted with Mr. McLean, and he basically was uh, unconscious almost to the point when they arrived. So we're, they're dealing with difficult situations in, you know, with all sorts of uh, factors out there, the variables that can't be predicted. And that's why courts and the law has allowed for uh, basically the higher standard gross negligence. But criminal negligence is going beyond that even saying, you know, there has to be the mens rea or the intent there to, to commit a uh, criminal act. And again, so something else to watch very closely is where, where they land with, with you know, obviously their definitions of what these guys allegedly have done. Um, but also there's a chance here that we could endanger relationships with our public safety community, that one of the kind of um, you know, unintended consequences could be some level of weariness, some level of possibly mistrust. I mean, what are the, and, and again, you identified some of these in the article that you wrote, but uh, you know, what are these things? And of course, the, the most important thing is how can we mitigate against these things happening? Yeah, so I assume you're specifically referring to the relationship between EMS and law enforcement, Rob. Absolutely, yes, indeed. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, so, I'm, I'm English and therefore the master of the understatement, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and I think, look, if there's one positive thing that can come out of a tragedy like this, and it's a tragedy any way you look at it, and, and it continues to be because there are some medics, you know, and some people that are going to be going through the, the mill here, but just the same, I think one of the positive things that comes out of it is the fact that this should shine a light on the need for EMS agencies to develop better training, better policies, better protocols. Uh, this is something we address in a companion article on EMS One uh, as well. But um, that aside, I think once EMS gets its own sort of direction straight in terms of training EMS professionals to intervene and to de-escalate and to be patient advocates, uh, to, to interrupt and break that, that cycle of, uh, of uh, force in some cases that can lead to these bad outcomes. Uh, I think that the, uh, the EMS pro professionals, the EMS agencies are going to have to redouble their efforts to do all those things. And they're going to have to uh, then reach out to their law enforcement partners to implement that in a way that's appropriate, that law enforcement, un they can reshape their expectations. We're not the guys that show up and give ketamine because you told us to. We're the guys that show up and have an independent obligation to assess the patient and render whatever care and interventions are necessary based on our assessment. 
And, you know, look, the relationship between EMS and, and uh, law enforcement is, is important. And in the vast majority of cases, that close relationship benefits the public. And I don't think anybody should lose sight of that, that it is good that they can help provide a safe scene and protection of our personnel and the, and the patients and bystanders and others involved. So normally that close relationship benefits the public. But where EMS practitioners subordinate their medical judgment to directions of non-medically trained law enforcement officials uh, and essentially simply become an adjunct to law enforcement by helping to subdue a patient with pharmaceuticals because the police asked you to, that's where we, that's where the danger to EMS comes, the danger to patients comes when we stop being a patient advocate and become merely another adjunct of law enforcement. And that is where our training, our policies, our medical oversight, and everything else, that's the pathway that has been illuminated for us by the McLean case. Excellent. Steve? Rob, you asked about, you know, how do you mitigate this? Well, one of the things identified in the 157-page independent investigative report was that the general attitude they saw when they did their investigation was that the patient's not a patient until law enforcement says they are a patient. And the reality is we all know that that's not unusual across the country. So to mitigate this, we need to be meeting with our law enforcement and develop procedures for that patient handoff. So, you know, what exactly, you know, do we do here in these situations so that we make sure that the person in custody under control of police or whatever you want to call it is taken care of properly, professionally, and with their interests in mind. And that's things you've got to work on ahead of time because you don't want to have that confrontation at the scene, as you know, because, you know, uh, you know EMS practitioners, uh, they, they treasure that relationship with police and vice versa. So you don't want to uh, have a situation that deteriorates and causes problems later. You got to work on this. You got to practice these things, uh, develop communication skill strategies so that EMS practitioners aren't just going along with the show and they intervene. And, and I think that's where, you know, we have a duty to access the patient. If we're there, we can't sit back. We, we got to, you know, intervene and do use positive communication skills to, to engage police to say, hey, you know, Let's get in there. He looks like he's turning blue. Can we check him out? We, it looks like he's having trouble breathing. Let us take a look. That type of thing that we often don't do or practice. And I think that's a great, you make a great point there. And as, as people often say, we shouldn't be handing our business card over at the scene of the disaster, the emergency or the, yeah, the, right. the, the condition or the issue. And so if you know lawyers who do that, so we don't want to do that. <laughs> right. Yes, indeed. And, and, and you're not chasing my ambulance, by the way. So you're, 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 right. you're, on, you're on the on the ambulance variety of, uh, of, right. of lawyers, by the way, and, uh, and we love you. But yes, so you should, the, the point about liaison, about engagement and about training is absolutely key. Um, something else that's happened in this particular case, and, and of course, is, is the body-worn camera. And folk, police particularly, are all wearing body-worn cameras. Sometimes we aren't. And so, of course, there is a perfect view of what we're up to for all to see once the, the, the film has been processed. And I think there was some body-worn camera clearly in this case as well. Um, but that's we have to realize that you know we I, I do a lot of talk about you know PIOs and being in the media and you know when are we being reported on the answer is all the time well also when there's a body worn camera about you're also being monitored and viewed too and so I think yeah. that's, that's a point to make for sure that adds a new dimension to the word accountability 
uh, body-worn cameras. It's all there, you know, and, you know, they're a great tool because they can be used for education and some are concerned about using them because, oh, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to be caught doing something incorrectly. Well, bottom line is you got an obligation to, to the patient and uh, if you made a mistake, so be it. But, uh, you know, this is a great way to have accountability and transparency, you know, for our public safety services in the community. And, so, and on that point, Rob, if I might, I mean, I think a lot of folks think that those are, you know, in public safety, think that those are there to be used against them. I mean, right. I'd say most defense lawyers would say in the majority of cases, those will be, those will exonerate uh, personnel from, from frivolous cases or cases that lack merit. The second thing I just want to say is even if we don't, and body-worn cameras are proliferate, proliferating both in law enforcement and starting in EMS as yes. well, but even in the absence of a body-worn camera, I think the working assumption, as Steve said, from an accountability standpoint is assume somebody somewhere is recording you. I mean, if you're in the back parking lot of a shopping center, there's cameras, you know, that, that are around the shopping center and, you know, most public places. Uh, so I think just act as if you are being recorded and act accordingly, because in this day and age, you, you probably are. And Absolutely. just for the benefit of those listening on the podcast, Steve just took a photograph of the Zoom screen. I'm sure that's going to end up on his <laughs> social media feed sometime very soon. Going back to the ketamine, though, of course, one of the things that did happen in Colorado, and uh, you know, I, 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 it's fair for me to say I think this has been politicized. Um, this has ended up in the uh, General Assembly of Colorado, and in fact, uh, House Bill 21-1251, I'm sure you're familiar with that bill, which yeah. is the appropriate use of chemical restraints on a person, yes. has been signed into law. And essentially, it says, and I'm actually, re I, I, my memory isn't this good, so I'm going to read it. When a peace officer is present at the scene of an emergency, an emergency medical service provider authorized to administer ketamine in a pre-hospital setting shall only administer ketamine if the EMS provider has weighed the individual to ensure accurate dosage, has training in the administration of ketamine, has training in advanced airway support, has equipment available to manage respiratory depression, and has equipment available to immediately monitor the vital signs of the individual. That's law, but isn't that also protocol? Yeah, let, let me take the first stab at this one here. And that I is, hope you will. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Um, and, and that is that, uh, look, you know, you said it, Rob, ketamine use is becoming politicized. It's becoming this pharmaceutical whipping boy in the EMS drug box. And, you know, if, if it's not ketamine, okay, then let's look at the rest of the paralytics and benzodiazepines and all the other controlled substances that we have the opportunity to incapacitate patients with, even when used properly. So to, ketamine certainly has become the politicized poster child uh, for for uh, for EMS, and you know when you you accurately read the portion of the law that says that all of those requirements for training and equipment being available are when ketamine is administered in the presence of a police officer, which almost implies we don't really care what you do when a police officer is not around, right? So you're absolutely correct. Clinically, it's the appropriateness of the administration of the drug under any circumstances. But I think what the Colorado, as you can tell, I'm a little bit opposed to the politicization in, in legislation of specific EMS treatments and, and, and medications. But And I think it's fair to say all of the associations and pretty much everybody in EMS is because we want to worry about medicine, the patient and the protocol and not the politics that sit behind it. 
Yeah, and and that said, I, I will say though that um, what this does, and then subsequent sections of that law also put new requirements on police officers and prohibit police officers from influencing or even attempting to unduly influence the judgment of the EMS practitioners. And I think what that does, as much as I'm against the politicization of, of ketamine, I think what it does is it highlights the fact that we that the legislature of the state of Colorado doesn't want EMS providers to subordinate their medical judgment to the directions of police officers. And that does go back to the, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you can, we can certainly speak about the, the, the wisdom of this bill, but the intent behind it is exactly that, that EMS practitioners be patient advocates, they act in the best interest of the patient, and that again, they do not subordinate their clinical judgment to law enforcement. I, I think uh, Doug makes some really, really great points there, and, and that's what we constantly have to be thinking about is the patient here. That's our prime responsibility. But the problem with this law is it goes too far, as we're all saying here. And the bigger problem as well is that this is the kind of thing that's going to happen if we don't have our get our house in order. If we don't constantly work to improve the situation, to get these procedures in place with our law enforcement, you're going to put it in the hands of legislators. And you don't want to do that because they're going to overreact based on the headline of the day or the case of the day, whether it's Elijah McLean or George Floyd or whoever it might be. So we really got to work hard to be preemptive here uh, to work on these things. And that report and in the article that we wrote, the second article really lays out some excellent strategies for what EMS agencies can work on now to prevent these kind of laws from evolving in their state. Colorado today, maybe it's Pennsylvania, Florida, California the next day, uh, based on the headline uh, case of the day. And we're also seeing a move to abolish qualified immunity. Uh, you know, basically that's a state by state law that you're dealing with here. And, you know, and plus there's a federal uh, house bill proposed to abolish uh, qualified immunity for federal law enforcement agencies. So this is all the kinds of things that uh, we don't want to see happen. We need to work to be proactive. Good answer. I'm going to come back to you in a second and ask you to give some of your top strategies uh, from the sec second article at ems1.com. But in the meantime, also make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and things I've probably never even heard of. Um, if you're enjoying the show also, please uh, take a moment to rate us so that we uh, rise up the charts in Apple Podcasts. Coming back then, what are some of the key strategies then, Steve, that's coming up in the second article at ems One? Sure, I'll rattle off a couple and then Doug could take a few more. Um, I think one of the things we also have to recognize is we all have implicit biases. You know, we deal with difficult patients all the time, bad people all the time. So there is this tendency in our subconscious brain that, oh, we see a person of a particular color or in a particular neighborhood or in a particular situation that, oh, this is what it's going to be we immediately jump the gun and come to a conclusion as to a diagnosis, if you will, before we even touch the patient. So we all have to recognize those biases and do some training to deal with those biases. That's one point. Uh, secondly, is we really got to practice, uh, you know, professionalism. You know, there's the debate about, should we have a degree or no degree? Should we be licensed or certified or whatever? But that misses the point from the standpoint of what a true professional is. And a true professional is someone who questions themselves, 
themselves, if they see a problem, that they're having difficulty doing something. So we have a duty to question ourselves. Then we have a duty to question our partner, other responders, or intervene in situations where we see bad behavior. Uh, the EOC a few years ago even put out a whole training program on bystander intervention because people weren't reporting sexual harassment because they were afraid to. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to intervene if they observed somebody harassing someone else unlawfully. Same principles apply here, but too often we follow the adage of what happens on the truck stays on the truck or what happens on shift stays on the shift and you've got my back, I've got your back. In, in a way that fosters dishonesty, it really does. And we have to be receptive and accountable for our actions and our inactions and take responsibility for them. And that's really what a professional is all about. So there's a couple, Doug, you wanna jump in with a few more? Yeah, thanks. I mean, we talked a little bit about training and you know, th this has gotta be really advanced higher level training where we're, we're, it's actually scenario based where EMS agencies can put together strategies to, to de-escalate, not put, we don't want to put law enforcement on the defensive. We, you know, these are very high, emotions run high. These are stressful situations, often under very, and sometimes dangerous circumstances. It's dark, it's cold, it's whatever. And, you know, when, when those tempers or emotions are running high, EMS needs to have it's just kind of like the de-escalation training that law enforcement is going through these days. In some cases, EMS needs to be trained in those strategies, scenario-based training to de-escalate. Steve touched on some phrases earlier, which are, are good phrases to use. Hey, it looks like he, he may be, his color may be bad. Can we check out his airway? How about if we turn him over and check him out here? And, you know, and th that kind of specific scenario-based training um, it's like anything that we do with this new, these new threats that emerge, active shooter training, unheard of, you know, when Steve and I started working in EMS, uh, you know, now commonplace. Uh, so as new things emerge like this, I think our training and our, um, our education of our providers and how we reach out and work with law enforcement, because at the end of the day, this is for their benefit too. We're not at cross purposes here. When a patient, when a person in custody suffers a medical emergency or, or asphyxia or a, a, a chemical reaction or a, a drug overdose or whatever it is, and dies or has is seriously incapacitated, those are the triggers for nationwide publicity, for civil suits, for potential criminal charges. And it's in law enforcement's interest to mitigate those as well. So, uh, yeah. So that's why it should be done in, in partnership. But you know that kind of scenario-based training is another, another one of our specific recommendations. Thanks. And I'll throw another one in, you know, the, the uh, Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm, primum non nocere. And if you're about to, you're approaching a situation and you're an outlier and you're about to do something that your colleagues wouldn't do in this situation, you ought to reevaluate what you're doing. And from a practical standpoint, I think every time we enter a difficult scene, we ought to take a deep breath, blow it out slowly, move our head and look around the room because that gives us uh, perspective and allows us to see uh, things in the corner of the room we may not ordinarily see and say, look, am I doing the best job I possibly can for this patient? Or I, I want to do the best I can for this patient and just clear your head for a second. And, and that'll help, you know, with this problem of jumping into a hectic, chaotic situation and going along with the show. 
those are exceptionally wise words, Steve. And uh, I think for the minute, we'll leave it there. But can we come back? Obviously, as this starts to unfold, this starts to play out, you've told us where we are. You've told us where we aren't. Uh, we've possibly had a look at where we're going with this case. Will you come back and uh, give us give us further updates? We'll be happy sure to. Will. Happy to. Thank, thank you and for the benefit of the tape. They're both nodding, so it's just good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1. The one is very important. Or find me over on LinkedIn. If you have a comment, please uh, leave your comments in the comments section at EMS1.com for this article. Um, that's all for today. But guys, how can we get hold of you? Easiest way is to, uh, we are also on LinkedIn, uh, or you can visit our website at pwwemslaw.com and you can link to any of our attorneys and consultants from there. Great. Excellent. Pleasure Excellent. to be with you, Rob. Thank you very much. And uh, so Doug Wolfberg, Steve Worth, thank you very much. We will have you back. That's about all for now. I've been Rob Lawrence. This has been EMS One Stop. Until next time. Bye for now.